James read to us from Acts chapter 5 this morning. Um, it's an interesting, for me it's an interesting account because you have a Pharisee, Gamaliel, on the council in the midst. Um, Jesus has been crucified and as far as the Jews are concerned, he's, he's gone, he's dead. Um, and yet they're dealing with these men that Jesus taught and left behind. And they just want to get rid of them. You know, they just, they're tired of them, they're a thorn in their side, they don't like them, they're, they're causing a havoc. Um, but Gamaliel has this really wise counsel, I think. I mean, like I said, he's a Pharisee on the council. And he makes this statement, he says, you know, there were some other men who rose up in the past. And once they were removed or killed or whatever, their followers just scattered, they dispersed. Um, and if this movement is for men, the same thing will happen. Again, because as far as Gamaliel is concerned, Jesus is gone. But then he says, however, if this is from God, you're not going to overthrow them. In fact, what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself opposing God. You're going to find yourself on the wrong side. So he actually tells them, you know, don't have anything to do with these men. Leave them alone. It'll peter out if it's really from men. And I, I, I find that idea somehow interesting about you know we might how we might find ourselves opposing God. You know I'm I'm going through life and I'm doing things the way I see fit maybe and and I can maybe open the scripture and find that I'm actually opposing God. I'm standing against Him. I'm trying to prevent. You know when Saul had that Saul of Tarsus had that same experience in his life. He was arresting Christians and going into their homes to drag them under prison. He stood by while Stephen was stoned. Um, I think he recognized later that he had been actively opposing the God of heaven. I want to look at an example um, this morning of someone who, who did that. And there are lots of places you can go in the, in the text, in the scripture, especially Exodus. If you want to see God at war with a man or a nation... Um, the Exodus in Egypt certainly would fit that example, but I want to look at a, I think a smaller example and a quicker example than, than what you see in Exodus. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter three, that's where we're pretty much going to spend um, all of our time this morning, just to see what it looks like if a, if you know a man is opposing God. What does it look like? You know. Because, you know, if I think about a man opposing God, if I, if I decide I'm going to set myself against God, well, it's almost as if the moment I make that decision, it's over. You know, we don't have to wait around for the battle to happen. Oh, let's see what happens when Richard fights God. You know, I mean, once Richard steps into the ring, you know, you don't really need to know what happens because God just has to decide in his mind, you know, Okay, Richard's done, and Richard's done. Um, so what does it really look like? Um, what, and, and I think one thing we need to keep in our heads is God's mercy when men set themselves against him. Because that's really how it could go. Is the moment we decide that we're opposed to God, which really is just sin, he could say, oh, that's it. You're done. But he hasn't done that because 
He doesn't want that end for us. He wants something different. Um, so we're going to look at this. We're going to look at an example here in Daniel 3. And I'm going to read um, a good part of the text. In fact, we're going to read all of the text um, because I think it says it says things better than I can. Um, and I'll just make a few comments about the text. So I'll read the first 15 verses here first in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So I think these first 15 verses kind of set the stage. You know, we see the two, we see the two opponents in the ring, so to speak. I mean, God isn't physically there. He's not manifest walking in face-to-face with Nebuchadnezzar. But what, what we do see is a couple of things from Nebuchadnezzar that oppose God. First of all, I think the easiest thing to see is man's creation versus God's creation. What is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar, this great, wonderful thing that he's created? You know, it's a golden image, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Now, that's a lot of gold. I mean, I don't care what standard you're gauging that by. If you've got 90 feet of gold, that's nine stories. That's a lot of gold. I mean, that's pretty impressive. And it's not just, you know, a rod of gold. It's nine, it's nine feet wide. I don't know how thick it was. We're not given that, right? But it's at least nine feet broad. 
It's a lot of gold. It's impressive. Um, but where is it located? It's in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. A small portion of what God has created. It's not even big enough to fill the plain that God made. And the plain is not even big enough to fill the province of Babylon that God made. And Babylon's not big enough to fill the earth that God made. You see, you see the differences between the two creations that are there? And, and is the gold really created by Nebuchadnezzar? It's not. Nebuchadnezzar took something that God had created and fashioned it. And melted it or molded it or whatever. So we're already not impressed by man's creation versus God's creation. Um, and this is also you know, pretty interesting. Um, is anyone really confused about the source of the image? I mean, that, this is one of the things that I had to ask myself over and over and over. Why does God want to repeat this so many times? Look in verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 12, 14. Whose image is it? We know exactly whose image, where the image came from. It's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. He says it. He says, the image that I have set up. The Chaldeans say it. The image that you have set up. The herald who proclaims loud, this is the image that King Nebuchadnezzar... Everyone knows it's from King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not from God. And yet, there's still this command to worship it. To worship something that another man has created. So I think this, a small point I want to bring out of this is that there's sometimes we can not be confused about the source of the things we're worshiping. We might verbalize or know that it's not from God. But we need to have that impact us and say, well then if it's not from God, it's not something I should be worshiping. It's not something that I should be serving. I mean, everyone here understood that. But only three people didn't bow down to it. Right? So, mini application, I guess if you want to call it, is the things that we take for granted, that we understand are not from God, how do we treat them? You know, are, do we make ourselves subservient to those things? Um, something we talked about in class this morning. What are we serving? You know, are we serving the things of men, or are we serving the things of Okay. The other thing is man's promises versus God's promises we see here. Um, did you notice in verse 6 what the consequence was for not bowing down? It says they would immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. But what, hap what, what happened in verses 13 to 15 to change that? I mean, these three men heard what the herald said, immediately we're going to be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Well, they should have been cast into a burning fiery furnace, but they weren't. Said Nebuchadnezzar says, no, bring them here. I'm going to suggest to you the reason he changed his mind, so to speak, was because he had appointed them. It was a personal affront to him. Hey, these are my guys. It's not from some province, you know, 100 miles away. These are here, and not only are they here, I put them in the post they're in, and the Chaldeans just pointed that out to me certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of Babylon have no respect for you. Right? It's a pride thing now. It's like, I don't want to just kill them. I want them to bow. 
I want their will to bend. So man's promises can change at the whim of man. They should have immediately been cast into the burning fiery furnace. That was the law. That was the decree. But when Nebuchadnezzar decides he doesn't want to do that, he just doesn't do that. What about the promises of God? Does God make a promise and say, well, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think so. We're, we're going we're gonna to change things up a bit. Um, if you want to, I don't know, Mark... Daniel 3, we're going to come right back there quickly. But look in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. These are just, I've just picked out some promises that God has made. They're some of my favorite promises when I think about the promises of God. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Another promise of God is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now when I think about the promises of man and the promises of God, I think about how man can change his promises just because he doesn't like the outcome. He doesn't like what his promise is going to require. But now contrast that with God, knowing that he keeps his promises. And then you read these promises. Do we live like these promises are from God, or do we live like these promises are from men? Because men train us to be suspicious. Men train us to doubt. If I promised you $1 million in the next 24 hours, right, you are automatically trained to doubt me because you know I've never shown anything in my life to show you that I even have that kind of money, much less can get it in 24 hours. So you're going to be like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I'm, you're, It's going to be a dismissal almost. Men make promises that they break all the time. But do we view God's promises that way? Do you know God has promised that there's a place for you prepared in heaven? For you personally. Not you as a group. You personally. And that he's coming back to receive you unto him. He's promised that. I mean, do, do, do we live like we believe that promise? Or is that, are we trained to say, well, you know, I, I've doubted because so many promises just haven't been. This is God making this promise. Or the resurrection in chapter 15. His intent, and we read this in, in, in 1 Corinthians this morning, his intent, his design for this body is that it is raised in glory. And that he puts immortality on that mortal body. That's his design. 
Do you believe that that is His promise for us? I mean, do we live like we believe that? There's a difference in the promises of men and the promises of God. And I think we see that right here in Nebuchadnezzar. The very same day that the decree is made, he breaks it. And he gives these guys another chance because now his goal has changed. God's goal doesn't change. He wants us in heaven. Okay, so we're setting up this, this battle of man versus God. We've seen man's creation. We've seen God's creation. We've seen man's promises, how they can change, and God's promises, how great they are, and we have no reason to doubt them. Um, let's read the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> beginning in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So now I think we see the actual battle. Right? And again, this, this is one of those things that I think God just allows to happen. Because if God decided he was going to destroy all his enemies, well, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have even been there. But God allows it to happen because his goal isn't destruction, right? His goal is salvation. And I think we see that even in this story, what we see in the end. So we see man's power versus God's power. How powerful is Nebuchadnezzar, really? 
I mean, set aside what we just read about the salvation of these men. I mean, he's a king over a rather large kingdom. And he's not just a king over... He's, he's consolidated his power. He's able to summon and position satraps and all these people in provinces all over his country to do his bidding. They come and go as he tells them to. That's a lot of power. I mean, that, that's not to be diminished. Right? Um, he's got this furnace... And he's prepared to throw people into this furnace to burn them alive. Um, who is he accountable to for that? No one on this earth. He's not accountable to anybody. He has what, what we would term in our in, in fleshly circles or whatever, complete power. No, he doesn't answer to anyone. He does what he wants to. And he has the means to carry out his will complete powers, again, on, from an earthly perspective. He's got it. That's pretty good. <laughs> but he, he doesn't even see himself as attacking God. He's just going after three men who serve some other different God than he's accustomed to. But what he doesn't know is that God, the, the God, is going to protect these men. So how much power um, does God have? I love this part of the story, verse 27. I say story, I mean, I mean, you can say story or account. It's not a story, it's an account. It's a historical account. Verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I mean, I imagine God's like, okay, I don't want them to be burned, right? And so they weren't burned. But then he says, no, I don't even want their hair to be singed. Like, don't, don't let the fire touch their hair. And he's like, yeah, in their, their clothes, I don't want the fire to touch. In fact, I don't even want them to smell like smoke. God says, I don't, I, not only do I not want them to be burned by the fire, I don't want them to smell like smoke. He just doesn't want them to smell like smoke. That is power. It, it, it just it just doesn't even compare. And it, it's, it's such a small expression of power. It's just three human beings not being burned by fire on one planet in one galaxy of the entire universe. Such a small expression of power, but it's beyond anything Nebuchadnezzar can put together. Why would we risk being found opposing that God? Um, okay, so one, one, more, one more contrast, and then we'll, we'll be done. Man's glory versus God's glory. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is in a pretty glorious position, pretty glorious even state, you know, to be king and, and to have men come and go as he pleases and to have the wherewithal to build this huge golden thing, whatever it was. Um, what were his plans when he got up that morning? You know, and he's stretching in bed, and he's thinking, all right, today's the day I'm going to glorify the God of heaven. No, that's <laughs> not what he's thinking when he's getting out of bed. He's like, all right, today's the day when I bring the hammer down. I've got, I've got everyone in Babylon. I'm going to let them know that I have control over this country and what I do to people who don't follow me. 
Um, I only need one or two examples. That's all I need. Just give me one or two examples of people who won't bow down to this thing so I can show them. Right? That's, I mean, I'm reading that into the text, but just put yourself in the position of a king. And that, I mean, that's what he wants to do. He wants to consolidate his power and send these guys back to their provinces telling stories about the golden image and the furnace. There was this golden image, and there were one or two guys who didn't bow down, and man, that furnace, you know, Nebuchadnezzar just threw him in. He's for real. He's the real deal. Right? I mean, that's Nebuchadnezzar wanting to spread his glory and his power. I mean, again, I'm reading that into the text, but I don't think you can really come to any other conclusions when you look at what he's done. That's what he wanted. Himself to be lifted up. But what really happened? Did you notice in verse, I think it's verse 29? Yeah. He actually makes a decree. You know, this is a, this is a legislative act that he's, he's engaging in here. This is a governmental thing. He made a decree that anyone who spoke against God would be killed and that their property would be destroyed. Now that decree didn't just sit there in Babylon. What does he have? At his, he's got all of his officials from all of these provinces there with him. When they go home, what are they going to be carrying with them? And what story are they going to be telling? Are they going to be talking about the golden image on the plain of Dura? Man, that's already forgotten. These guys don't even know what that golden thing is over there. They're thinking about the furnace and these three men walking out of the furnace and they didn't even smell like smoke. I mean, if I'm there, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and just tell everybody on the way. On the way home, I'm going to tell people. These guys walked out of that furnace. Nebuchadnezzar's powerful. He's got a lot of money. But he's ran into something he didn't expect. We need to find out more about this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because that's power. That's the difference between the glory of man and the glory of God. God can glorify Himself. God does glorify Himself. And man, when we seek to glorify ourselves, we do find ourselves opposing God because that's not what we're designed for. We are intended to glorify Him, not ourselves. And even when you don't wake up in the morning expecting to do it, God can work through you either in your obedience like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or in your disobedience like Nebuchadnezzar. He will be glorified one way or the other. And he leaves the choice of how, he, how you glorify him up to you. Either you obey and he's glorified or you disobey and he's glorified. He's going to be glorified. And that's the difference between the glory of men and the glory of God. So I think, I mean, again, this is a small example, but when, if we don't want to set ourselves in opposition to God, you know, what's required? Is it some great battle, or you know, do we have to wage some war? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually do? I mean, if you think about them, just put put your your lens on them. What did they do? All they did was stand up. I mean, literally, physically. They just they were already standing, and they just didn't bow down. It was actually what they didn't do. 
all they did. God did everything else. Right? If we want to be like that and not opposing God, we just need to engage in simple obedience. And that's it. We don't need to look for some way to make God bigger than He is. He does that. He shows Himself as He is. We don't need to recreate Him for people. And we don't need to do something beyond what He's asked us to do. Simple obedience, He will work through us to glorify Himself. Okay. I think the final point I want to make is we must be aware that God is fighting a battle against death that is claiming people every day. And I don't just mean physical death or spiritual death. Um, he's fighting that battle through his obedience. And we can be that those obedient people. Um, and we will either be those obedient through whom God fights his war, or we're going to find ourselves opposing him in that battle. There's just not a neutral in this. So my encouragement to you is just seek to be simply obedient. And God does all the amazing, fantastic things we can't comprehend. We don't have to do those things. Thanks for your time.